sank the dark clouds deeper and ran the wild moon hunting alive with fur and feather as omen apparition we left the moon suspended and leapt back onto the ground Welcome to the Antipodean Arts Podcast. This is episode 27. I'd like for everyone here and everyone who's listening to this podcast right now to take some moments, take some breath, find yourself centred in space and um, we want to acknowledge that where we sit today recording this podcast, we are on Kurilpa land or the land of the water rat and in the land that belongs to the Yagara and Turrbal people that still belongs to them, that was unseated. I want to pay um, a special respect to the elders, past, present and emerging and to all the people who are currently protesting all over the world for First Nations and Black Lives. Ashe. Thanks, Brianne. Well, every time we, we get together, uh, I don't, the world's crazy <laughs> and we sort of go, hey, how are you going today? Mm. Um, but how do you really answer that question? So maybe we'll just jump straight into yeah, our wonderful guest because <laughs> this is important. Um, we have the beautiful Mandanara Bales. That's it. Here with us, uh, who is the managing director of a kick-ass company called Black Card, which we will hopefully talk about, and also the host of my new favourite podcast, Black Magic Woman. So thank you so much for coming. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, anytime. All this right. is awesome. My first <laughs> podcast on someone else's podcast, so ah. I'm a little bit nervous. Don't be nervous. I'm always too. nervous every time <laughs> I do it. And well, I, I love the fact that you said just kind of breathe and centre yourself and I think that's the best piece of advice so that you can actually just think and let those thoughts come. Yeah. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. It's as much for myself as everyone else. Mm. I'm always packing it the minute the mic goes on. It's just the way it goes, <laughs> especially when we have wonderful people dropping in uh, to where I work and also getting feedback online. But knowing that people are listening to this all over the place, all over the world, it can be a little daunting, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> Definitely. So you've, um, well, I thought that you um, had something on earlier today, but um, the protest was cancelled. But could you talk a little bit about what was planned and what happened instead and how you're connected to that? Definitely. But what I'm going to do, Brody and Theo. With an F. With an F. Theo. Theo. Yeah. Okay. So um, what I would like to do is um, first and foremost, I too would like to acknowledge um, the traditional owners of the land where I'm gathering, where we are today. Um, so, yes, Yagara people are from the south side of the Brisbane River and mm-hmm. the Turrbal people are north side mm-hmm. of the Brisbane River and acknowledge their elders past and present. And I think it's so important that when we acknowledge traditional owners that we actually take a moment to educate on why. Mm. We're acknowledging country and the importance behind that because once people understand why we're doing it, mm. more and more Australians will become part 
of this, you know, diplomatic tradition. It's an ancient protocol that's been in practice for tens of thousands of years and it's got nothing to do with being politically correct. And a lot of people think it's around, you know, political correctness or they call it PC. And I say, hold a minute, you know, our people have been here for tens of thousands of years. As far as I'm concerned, political correctness came in yesterday. (laughs) And it's not in the spirit of reconciliation either because that's like a 20-year-old movement. Mm. We're talking about a tradition that dates back tens of thousands of years. It's a tradition where you acknowledge that you're a visitor on somebody else's country. So I want to acknowledge that I'm a visitor on Yagara and Turbul country and uh, my family have been here since 65, but um, it doesn't make you a traditional owner. Mm. So I, um, my country, so this is a perfect lead way into, mm. you know, my country, I grew up in Redfern, you know, the heart of, of Sydney right where the movement started, if you Mm. want to talk about, you know, black politics in this country. But that's Gadigal country, that inner city CBD area, and I'm not Gadigal. But my mother's mother and four generations back were all taken under government policy. So I want to acknowledge that I'm the first on my mother's side that wasn't forcibly removed by government policy. So when we talk about history in this country, we're talking about, you know, within people's Living memory. Living memory and within my living memory as well. Um, So I had the privilege of growing up with my own mother and father, with my own siblings, in my own household. And a lot of of Aboriginal people can't say the same. So Mm. I guess just putting that out there that on my mother's side, I'm the first generation that wasn't taken. So I was, you know, raised um, and educated and I was able to be socialised amongst Aboriginal people in the Redfern Aboriginal community. So I'm very much part of that community in Sydney. But my mother's traditional country is the Hunter Valley and that's Wanneroa people outside of Newcastle. And it's like literally the oldest vineyards and wineries than anywhere else in the country. It's a beautiful country. And that's my mum's country. But you know what? We grew up in Redfern and didn't even know that two hours away was our traditional country. We always thought we're from Redfern. Mm. My mother didn't know about her people and her mother didn't know about her people. So this is only the last kind of 15 years that I'm able to stand before people and say my mother's country is so-and-so, my father's country is so-and-so. So my mother's country is a one of all people from the Hunter her, her grandfather was a Roberts and the Roberts are a really large Aboriginal family. He was one of 13 brothers from around Ballina, Lismore, even up to the Tweed River around Byron Bay. And they're Bundjalung people. And a lot of people know of the Bundjalung National Parks, mm. um, but they don't know that the Bundjalung National Parks is named after the, the, the people there. But my mother had red hair and freckles, right? Her last name was O'Reilly and she looked as Irish so as they this come. this connection when I was thinking of you coming on here and talking with Theo because it's a similar one with all of us. Yes. <laughs> so I want to acknowledge my Irish ancestry mm. on my mother's side because if my mother wasn't forcibly removed, would he have been part of our life? I, I think he would have been. And I, I'm pretty sure, and I don't know the exact situation, but I'm pretty sure he left my nan when his children were taken from him for no other reason but the fact that they had a European father. And, you know, it was only one generation ago that under that government policy of the day you could remove an Aboriginal child if they had European heritage. So 
I want to acknowledge my Irish ancestry because my mother did, even though she was born and raised on the block, she was a red fern girl. Um, you know, her last name was O'Reilly. They chopped the O off. Her dad chopped the O off. I don't know why, you know, but these are stories that hopefully one day I will find the answers to mm. and maybe find that side of our family. On my dad's side, we come from a little place called Theodore and the Dawson River is quite special to our people. That, that country there outside of Rockhampton, about 100k out of Rocky in central Queensland, that's Gungaloo country, all pronounced Gungaloo. So the Gungaloo people are from the Dawson River. His grandfather came from Nebo, which is outside of Townsville, so more north Queensland. So my dad was like this cowboy, literally R.M. Williams boots, the <laughs> cowboy hat, long hair. If you, if My dad's name was Tiger, right? <laughs> In Midnight Oil's Beds Are Burning film clip, you'll see my dad on the block with Peter Garrett with the cowboy hat on and the long hair um, <laughs> because he was part of the, the land rights movement back in the 80s. So in terms of Queensland, you know, my dad left Queensland, uh, left central Queensland, came down to Redfern. He met my mum and I'm pretty sure they may have all been either on the way to Canberra for one of the first big protests, the 10 Embassy protest. Uh, but my dad literally came to Redfern with four brothers and they all looked like cowboys <laughs> and came to like, you know, the block, you know, which was kind of back in those days, was definitely like a ghetto and he never left. Mm-hmm. So my dad passed three years ago. He was a Queenslander. My mum passed 20 years ago. She was from New South Wales. So I'm a Koori. My children, I've got five children, three that I gave birth to, so I'm not that old. Um, But my children are are very proud Aboriginal Kiwi Fijians. So I married a Kiwi-born Fijian um, and they identify as all three. Mm. But what's interesting is that my boys always ask me, why don't you want to be a Murray? (laughs) And I'm like, because I don't go for the Maroons. (laughs) So I've been in Queensland for 25 years. But Redfern will always be my home. And I think what's really important about that introduction is that we get to know each other as human beings and obviously that's what my podcast is based on is who are you? You know, we're not our job titles. We're much more than that. So I just told you that I'm a mother, I'm a a wife, you know, obviously um, I've got sisters and I'm an auntie and so and so. But I'm one of eight daughters. I don't have any brothers um, and being married to a Kiwi-born Fiji it tells you a bit more than about me as well. So I think especially where we are in the world right now, what's going on in the world, that if we was able to just focus or invest more time on getting to know each other mm. as people instead of, oh, hi, I'm Manzanara Baz, I'm the Managing Director of Black Card, it tells you nothing about me. Yep. So as part of Aboriginal society, relationships are really important. Mm. You know, when you build relationships and you invest in relationships, it minimises potentials for conflict. And it was interesting listening to your podcast. That was one of the the things I I loved about you uh, talking about acknowledgement of country. And I think something that a lot of witches and pagans would get behind is that concept that this is a a ritual, um, a a protocol that has existed and been practised for thousands of years and that that is something that we then could do, that it's not something that, because I've even spoken on this podcast about being quite nervous about doing it correctly and and almost, you know, making sure I push past that uncomfortable make, spot because make it's it your more own. important. Yeah. Make it your like own. Theo's helped me a lot with that and doing this podcast has helped me more because I think everyone should do this. Well, if I would say, look, 
if mainstream Australians, everyday Australians, the wider community, mm. non-Indigenous people, whatever terminology we're going to use, yeah. if you're able to take on some of the same obligations and responsibilities to this land, mm. then to me that's a step in the right direction. The if you want to talk about to reconciliation, well, that's over there for me. I think we still need truth-telling yeah. before we can aim for reconciliation. But what I want to say is this, that you don't have to go to Uluru to the to remote places in outback, you know, Northern Territory. I've never been there myself. Yeah. But you don't have to go to places like Uluru to immerse yourselves in Aboriginal culture. People yes. seem to think that the real Aborigines live out in the outback and they're still walking yeah. around in lap laps and, you know, painting on caves. They may be, but 75% of us live in urban settings, <laughs> urban and regional cities. But I would say that, you know, 97% of the population in this country identify as non-Indigenous people, right? Mm. If they're able to connect more with this country, take on some of those responsibilities, I think they would find their place in this country. Mm. And that sense of belonging is so important from an Aboriginal perspective. A lot of newcomers, I think they're still searching or trying to find that at home or place where they're content and some people will never find that. If you start engaging more with Aboriginal people, you'll become part of our communities, you'll become part of our families Mm. and you will find a sense of belonging with us, you know. But why wait till you meet an Aboriginal person to to find that, you know, connection to this land? Understand the knowledge from this land. It belongs to all of us that live here. And I, I hope people feel more included. Once you're understanding a little bit about the knowledge and the, the protocols and the history, the philosophy mm. of the land that you call home, you know, you may go back like six, seven or eight generations and still know nothing about the place that you live in. For me, that's ludicrous, right? But that's the reality here in Australia. Yeah. And I would just say that um, the more and more that people start to see that there is a place for all of us in this country, that we can all embrace the full history and heritage of this country, then that's the kind of Australia that I want my children to live in. Here, here. Yeah. For sure. And what you were also saying then about this way of, of introducing each other or, or of meeting and of learning more about each other when you're first introduced to each other and how that automatically creates a, a bond and creates a, a community um, and how that helped and, and assisted for thousands of years. Oh, we had no, no violence. We and had no war. I heard that on your podcast and I was like, I think people just assume that that is also part of it, that that, that uh, different mobs were fighting amongst each other as well and, and that when and the colonisers came through it was, yeah. You know, and I would say this. There's nowhere on earth that there's completely peace and harmony, okay? You can aim for a peaceful society. We are human, (laughs) right? (laughs) We gave conflict a place in our society. That's interesting. Mm. We allowed for conflict because conflict is part of us. Mm. You know, those those emotions around being angry and being hurt or being Mm. upset or whatever, they're valid. valid. Mm -mm. So... We did definitely have conflict and we did go to war with with neighbours and we had traditional enemies that we had these avoidance relationships with, Mm. but we never fought over land. We never fought over territory. Mm. There was no kind of conquering or subjugation um, in, in our history of living here. And how do we know that? Because there's no written word. We didn't invent writing here. It's an oral history. So how do we know that no one ever invaded their neighbours here? 
you only have to look at the Tyndale map, you know, the Aboriginal map of Australia. Mm-hmm. Look at all of the languages. There's over 500 different countries mm-hmm. and just under 1,000 different languages were spoken before the first boat arrived in this country. If there was constant invading, especially over land, there would have been fewer languages yeah. left, right? Yeah, this is true. Because all around the world when you look at world history, when, you know, a, a country is being colonised, language is one of the first things. Yeah. They stamp out. The coloniser imposes their language on the coloniser. Look what we're speaking today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that map, the Tyndale map, you know, it's not 100% accurate but I could tell you now it gives you a bit of a snapshot to go, well, how did all of these people live here that spoke all these different languages from all these different countries but no one went to war with each mm. other? It's mm. unheard of, right, when you look at world history. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, invasion uh, in this country, I could tell you now, was inconceivable and second of all, there's no word for invasion in any of those 1,000 languages. Really? So language tells us a lot about a culture. Mm. Yes. And unfortunately 90% of There's those languages. There's no need for that word. Exactly. We did not have um, words for please or thank you, mm. no word for goodbye. And how's this one? No word for why. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, if you've got little <laughs> I like people, yeah. I can tell you now, they do your head in with asking why about everything to the point where you just after the 10th explanation and they still ask why, you kind of just get because that's just the way it is. Yeah. From the Aboriginal perspective, having no word for why actually supports and encourages a child to find the truth themselves. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You're encouraging a, a little person to use their own imagination. Heaven mm. forbid. Yeah, where, where, why can't we go back to that? It's yeah. not too late. I don't think it's too late. No. And I hope this is the start of, of, of that happening. Of course. Much more frequently. Mm. Well, the more we educate people that, you know, the Western way is not the only way. Exactly. Yes. You know, the Western way is one way and it is the dominant way because, you know, Australia is a Western or a Westernised society. Yeah. yeah. But we can go back to our roots. Yeah. This knowledge isn't lost. No. You know, and if we all just spent a little bit of time trying to understand the people of the land, the culture here, the knowledge, the wisdom, the history, you so know. Just a little bit of practice before us, just a few years there. Just a few. Just a few <laughs> to maybe work some things out we could have asked. That's sort of it. We've, we've already done the hard work for oh, you. Yeah. We've figured all of this out yeah. without going to war with our neighbours. Poms like to push shit uphill. Well, look, I could tell you now, we don't mind, have, we, we, we like a good argument, right? A lot of, and I use the term blackfellas and I don't want to offend any of the listeners here, but blackfellas is definitely not a term to use to try and insult someone. Mm. It's more about how I live my life, mm. right? So it's got nothing to do with colour of skin and, mm. and features, right? But, yeah, blackfellas don't mind a good argument. And I'll tell you now, you know, we'll stand by <laughs> things. But in terms of, like, going to war for things, no. Yeah. And I think one thing's really interesting, right, because people keep comparing us to the Maoris in New Zealand. Mm. You know, our brothers and sisters across the ocean, the uh, Aboriginal people in Canada, the Native uh, Americans in in the US. Why compare us to other Indigenous groups in the world when first this is the main difference between us that makes us like so different that there's no one like us in the world? We didn't invent a hierarchy. 
no chieftainship structure, yeah. mm. no person at the top that tells the rest of the tribe what to do. Mm. So how different is that society where there's no leaders, there's no monarchies mm. and there's no chieftainship structure, mm. that male and female are like equals but not even, I don't even think equals is the term I should be using. You know what? Balance. Mm. Male and female being in balance because balance occurs in nature, right? It's, mm. It occurs in if things get out of balance, you work hard to get things back into balance. Mm. But imagine living in a society where male and female complemented each other and one could never dominate the other. Mm. And even little people are seen as equals to adults. But you need some kind of, you know, authority. Mm. And that's where elders played mm. that role. Mm. You know, like mm. elders were like a soft hierarchy but not a rigid hierarchy. Mm. They couldn't order the people to go to war as such. They could give their guidance They and could wisdom. give their guidance because they have authority mm. but they don't have power. Yeah. You know, and that's interesting because, you know, in the Western world power and authority are conflated, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. And in the Aboriginal world what we've done is we, we separated Authority sits with older people, mm-hmm. older people with capacity, of course, <laughs> because we do have 50-year-old teenagers and that's okay. <laughs> You're not expected to grow wise with age. We have a, a wonderful understanding of what it means to be human and human psychology. But authority sits with older people and power is diffused throughout the group. Yeah. And elders are part of the group as well. Sure. And you know what, Socrates, who was Aristotle's teacher, right? Well, now we're getting to Greek philosophy. Oh, we love, we love it here. That. Okay, Go for it. Your yeah. listeners are all ears. So Socrates said that a perfect society would be one that's ruled by a council of wise older people. Mm. And little did Socrates know what was happening over On here in this country. Mm. Literally, mm. this is an island continent mm. made up of hundreds of small societies that each were autonomous countries, so they were bosses for themselves, and they were ruled—not ruled in a you know in a Western sense—but you know, elders were the authority. Mm. And I I just think that's amazing because where we are in the world right now, to have one person making decisions on behalf of the group, yeah. you know, I think sooner or later people are going to get pissed off. Yeah, especially when they're a what sixty-year-old teenager. With no capacity. With no capacity. So you don't have to have, you know, there's no pressure on you as as an older person in the Aboriginal society that now you've got grey hair that you must have all this knowledge and wisdom. Because there's a place, I guess, for that. And there's certain individuals that that have conducted themselves. And now that's interesting. How do you know who the elders are in an Aboriginal community, Mm -hmm. right? The community decide who the elders are. It's a natural, organic process Mm. that happens over time. There's no ceremony Mm. that we come together and go, okay, now we're going to, you know, appoint the elders in Brisbane. (laughs) It doesn't happen like that. So just based on deeds. You know what? It's based on your conduct. Yeah, Yeah. right. That's very refreshing. How you conduct yourself with what you know throughout your whole lifetime. Yeah, consistently. So you're constantly being observed. So that to me is unfair. That you know, even as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, crazy, living a life, kind of recklessly, no (laughs) responsibilities. And the last thing I ever thought that I'd be doing the work that I do now, like I'm in business with the matriarch 
of our family. Mm. Aunt Lilla Watson is 80 this year and, you know, she's definitely a, a well-respected and highly regarded, not just an elder but an academic internationally. Mm. And I'm her business partner. <laughs> if you would have asked me about 15 years ago, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know what my answer would have been? Nothing. I don't want to be anyone. I don't want to achieve anything. I don't want to go to university. I just want to live each day as it Sweet. comes. And you know what? I lived every single day as if it was my last day. And I had no idea what next week was going to bring me. I had no, you know, I wasn't really career driven. I had no children. Um, and now I've ended up doing the work that I do where at every opportunity and every interaction I'm so mindful of what I say, <laughs> who I'm talking to because it will get back to not yes, just in our communities too. That's exactly <laughs> right. So now I'm kind of, you know, people say to me, oh, well, obviously you're like an elder in the making. And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> I just want to be me and I mm. want to live each day and enjoy, you know, being a 36-year-old free spirit, mm. you know, an independent black woman. I might be married but I'm still the boss. Mm. Um, but I don't want to have that pressure on me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I just want to live my life and I don't want my children to have that pressure on them either. Yeah. And I think that's so amazing with Aboriginal culture is that we are born into a world of obligations. Mm. And I would say that for non-Aboriginal people, and I'm kind of generalising here, but in the Western world I believe that you fellas are born into a world of expectation to a large degree. There's mm-hmm. a lot of pressure on you as you're growing up, you know, to, to, to do the right thing and to go to school and mm-hmm. to graduate and mm-hmm. to go to university and do this career path, do what your father did or whatever, right? Mm. There's a lot of pressure on you fellas. And when you don't live up to that expectation, I think that's quite damaging Mm. for people. So imagine being born into a world where there's no pressure on you, there's no expectation, but I would say obligations outweigh the expectations (laughs) (laughs) because obligations, it's like, you know, someone asks you for 20 bucks and and you've only got 20 bucks left, you would give them 10. Yep. Of your last 20 bucks because you feel that sense of obligation. Yep. Even to non-blood relatives. Yep. yep. You know, so I I, 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 I kind of try to live that way too. Yep. And I hope, I just wish that it was always like that, that that people were like coming yeah. up. Because I'm half Balinese. I wasn't born in this country. I was born in Bali and we have a very similar thing. We don't have expectation, but we have so much obligation. Definitely. <laughs> for your for your own family, yeah, but yeah. for your even non-blood relatives. For everyone and for more than human. Yes. Yeah. And so we're, and also if I go back, you know, because a lot of witches are interested in going back, especially if we're attracted to European Indigenous tradition, to our ancient Celtic ancestors. And we're like, what did they do? Because the church took it. The church, first it was Rome. They invaded the islands. They they pitted the tribes against against each other and they some of them got colonised and they started w- being vassals for the Roman emperor. And then, of course, the church came and they gave up their ancestral culture mm-hmm. and their traditions and yeah. their spirits for the church and then sometimes they were being killed. And didn't you fellas, I'm not saying you fellas as Balinese, but in terms of white the, fellas yeah, over there in, the, no, in no. Europe, didn't you fellas have a treaty amongst yourselves called the Treaty of Westphalia? Yep. Or the warring they were, tribes? I think that in the end that was how they got us because it was so factional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Look at this history lesson. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? You have to meet my Annie Mary Graham. Annie Mary is one of the, the – there's three elders with black card, right? And Annie Mary is my Aunt Lilla's best friend. Mm. And she's a political scientist. She's 70. And Aunt Mary travels with me all around the country and delivers black card with me. Yep. But her her knowledge of the world – I think she's more knowledgeable than a lot of white fellas Probably. on their uh, own I, history. 100%. Yeah, That's not, yeah. So true. sitting in a room, listening to an Aboriginal elder, not just talking about our logic, our history, our philosophy, World our history. way of being. She's in the, in this room giving non-Aboriginal people examples and comparisons but using their own culture, their own history. To show them. To say, you know what, we weren't living under a rock in this country. We're no. quite aware of others outside of ourselves, mm-hmm. But you know what I wanted to go back to? There was a terminology around that that obligation, right? Mm. And this is Annie Mary's, this is her work as an academic. It's called the law of obligation. Like right? L-A-W? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, so L-O-R-E to me, look, I don't know. I think L-O-R-E is more around fairy tales and stuff. You know, L-A-W is like, okay, yeah. how do you socially and politically mm-hmm. order a society? Yeah. Mate, we were, there was not anarchy in this country. No. We we're all law-abiding citizens. Yeah. <laughs> if we weren't law-abiding citizens, then we would have been, you know, invading each other's countries and so on. But that law of obligation is so important. It goes back to relationality. So the first relationship, right, is the relationship with the land. So you have an obligation to look after the land mm. because the land invented us. And this is an Aboriginal logic, right? Mm. If the land gave birth to us, so when we talk about Mother Earth, it is literally a real thing. Mm-hmm. We yeah. see the earth as our mother. Mm-hmm. Yep. It gave birth to us. It invented us. So now we are forever obliged to look after it. So this is a reciprocal relationship. You know, the law of reciprocity. Annie Mary writes about this and I never went to university. (laughs) I'm the first on both sides of my family just to finish high school. So that was a big achievement for a little girl from Redfern. Heck yeah. But the law of obligation and that relationship with the land, Mm. how you treat the land is like a template for a human society on how you treat each other. Yeah. And that's what I would love for everyone in this country and around the world, but people in this country. When you think about the resources that's been mined out of this country, we're probably one of the most wealthiest countries on the planet. Yep. But that's because we don't have that respect for the land, mm. you know, our giver of life. Mm. The land and, and planet Earth can can live without us. It doesn't need us. She sure doesn't. But we need it mm. to survive, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when are we actually going to wake up to ourselves and realise that relationship with the land mm. is so important because it gave birth to us? So I think Christianity, you know, is only like 2,000 years old Mm -hmm. and religion for some countries go back about Mm 5,000 years and we have a lot of Aboriginal Christians and a lot of Aboriginal Muslims Mm -hmm. and a lot of Aboriginal people that, um, you know, practice Buddhism. Is it Buddhism? Yeah. So I'm not saying that you have to be either or. No, of Mm -mm. course. Right? In Aboriginal logic, all perspectives are valid and reasonable. Mm. Right? So you can be an Aboriginal person, a very strong in your culture, but you could be a Catholic as well. Yeah. Whereas in Western logic, you can't be either or you have to be one or the other, right? Mm. You can't sit on the fence. We've Mm. got to put that label on it. Yes. So I think that's why Aboriginal people are so grounded because of that logic. 
It's a non-judgmental yeah. logic. You probably find with black fellas are probably the least judgmental people on the on the planet. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I have felt that, and a lot of that would resonate for people listening who are practitioners of, of witchcraft or paganism in all of its forms because that would be something we recognise as one of the first things that we think also and the thing I think most of Western culture lacks severely mm. is that awareness of of the earth and that we belong to her and, as you say, that it doesn't yeah. need us at all. And In fact, we, we very quickly have buggered it up here in the last 230 years. I know. Um, and if we had have just listened to First Nation people and listened to that law and, and that understanding of co- country, because we had our friend Sal on here before and she helped us, well, myself especially, to understand more what, what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, because and I think it's a word know, that gets thrown around a little bit, yeah. you know, without people really understanding what Well, that acknowledgement of country, means. you know, that to me is like, okay, this is now my opportunity mm. to actually conduct myself differently, yeah. knowing what I know now. If I'm going to take on that duty, you know, that important protocol of acknowledging that I'm a visitor on somebody else's land, you know, that ancient diplomatic tradition, mm. if you're acknowledging country, then how are you going to conduct yourself? While you're here. Why you're here. Mm. So don't just have lip service yes. and, and read the script every time you have an opportunity to acknowledge traditional owners. I think that's what I was afraid of like when we were first doing it because I didn't want it to feel that way and I didn't want it to come across that way. I wanted it to be sincere and that's something that's very important for us as, as and for myself as a witch and a pagan to be respectful and connected to this country, to this land. And having been born in Brisbane myself, now having this completely uh, different understanding of of where I'm from, mm-hmm. um, I said I was you know it's shocking that I was 36 years old you know when I knew that the Brisbane River was called Miwa. Mm-hmm. I broke my heart that I'd mm-hmm. spent my whole time being born not. I'm going to give you the new the I'm going to give you the oh, real please. pronunciation. I learnt this last week. Yeah, Marawa. Marawa. So Marawa yeah. is the river. Oh, beautiful. And people still say, I read it in a bio the other day, that they come from Mianjin in brackets Brisbane. Mianjin is only like the CBD area and where the Botanic Gardens is, that little bit there. That's Mianjin. So if you're born in the CBD, then okay, you're from Mianjin. But otherwise, (laughs) I think people and I think that's what's, you know. Simplifying it a little. Yeah, so I heard from um, our Yagara person, Madonna Thompson, a, a beautiful sister, and she said to me, you know, the pronunciation, um, you know, Black Card has the cultural tours, so we do walking tours around Brisbane and um, our tour guides need to actually know mm. the right pronunciation if we're going to be educating not just everyday Brisbaneites but also international guests that they're using that correct pronunciation. So the last two years we've been saying the May one too. <laughs> <laughs> so now we've got it. And that's okay because now we we'll know what we know. Yeah. We'll use the correct pronunciation. That's so Marawa. Marawa. I know right. this is the first time I've actually I shared love this it. with somebody. Thank you no, so much great. for sharing it with us and with our listeners. Because we say that word a lot on Yeah, this we podcast. do because we speak about the river most times when we acknowledge country because yeah. for me I speak to her every morning when I cross her to come and work here and ask permission to come to Kurilpa and to, to work and mm-hmm. um, because I do spirit work here as well, um, mm-hmm. it's just a given, right? But now I'll be able to say her name. Oh, Kurilpa, right? Yeah. Kuril, you said, is the water Kurilpa. rat, the native water rat. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure 
Kurilpa, because Kurilpa Bridge, Kurilpa Point, I'm oh. pretty sure it is only the area where the State Library is. Where it is, yeah. Mm. That area there where is Kurilpa. Yeah. Because Kurul, native water rat, mm. pa, any word in the Turrbal language, I'm pretty sure, that has pa on the end means place of. Mm. Oh, so okay. if it's Kurulpa, place of, place of the native water rat. Mm. And I don't know if the water rat is in this direction. It wouldn't come up I don't think river. it's right here. We're too far away from the river. <laughs> from the river. So isn't that interesting? That's amazing. Yeah. And I am so excited. I mean, there's it's no good, such thing as coincidence, it's but good thank to you know so things. much. Yes. Yeah, because then you can educate people. Yeah. So don't just think, oh, I'm not Aboriginal, this is not my place. To share my knowledge, I think yeah. there is an opportunity and I think more importantly, we actually need the 97% to carry some of the workload with us, yes. not yes. without us, yeah. you know. But if you're knowledgeable and you've been educated by Aboriginal people, then I do think you've got kind of some sense of responsibility yeah. now mm. to then go and educate others. Yeah, yeah. We, there's no room... Um, for any silence at the moment no. in any area and there's got no, to be never. conversations and they're, they're not, you know, they're not easy ones. I had an amazing conversation with my mum last night. We spoke for over an hour on the phone about these things and, and uh, hard hard subjects and hard ideas, you know, um, but it was amazing. I think that it is it is our duty right now to anything we overhear, and anytime what, we can. Did your mum, did your mum, was she on board? Or was yeah, you? she's, she uh, raised, raised us. To, to really be um, respectful and understanding of all cultures. And uh, there's there's a lot of our history that we don't know either. And um, But there are things that her, just her generation, just mm-hmm. her age group, sorry, mum, um, we won't <laughs> we say love what you, that mom. is. We love you, mama. Yes, um, to all the mamas out there. That, you know, and, and also for her understanding white privilege because she had she's had a really – tough life and mm-hmm. she's definitely not one part of the 1%. Yeah. And so her understanding that, that it's not taking away from other people's experiences or saying that no one has had it bad, it's that we need to talk about the house that's on fire right now, um, you know, and it was wonderful. It's those sorts of things, yeah. I love that but, because you know what a lot of people say to me? It's like, look, so in Australia, I don't know if you know the statistics around the population but – Half of the Australian population, so non-Aboriginal people, mm. are over the age of 55. Mm. That's a lot of people that are right. in that older. I didn't realise that. Not, they're not all old at 55 no. plus. I'm not My saying mum's that. a Betty. My mum's a complete Betty. But I just want to say that if we've got half of our population here in Australia that grew up under the white Australia policy yes, era, exactly. right, which was a policy that was in place until the 70s mm-hmm. to keep Australia white. So mm-hmm. if you was non-European, you could not become a citizen in Australia, which is a black country. But anyways, we, we won't go into that right now. But what I want to say I is this. always can't love it. Uh, what I want to say is this. We need the older population. Mm. We need the older generation to jump on board, you know, because yeah. they make up the numbers in this country. And that's your mother, yeah. your father, your grandparents I think for her, and so it on. It was a big thing for me to say, you know, um, you've, I don't know, now I'm going to get stuck on it. I'm trying to think of how I kind of articulated it to her. 
It's gone. That's well, it was that's her her uh, her hardships have nothing to do with her being white. No. So that's, and I so said that's, that's where I got her. I'm like because we've had lots of troubles in our life, but none of it was because of the color of our skin, <laughs> Mum. And she understands that. And what it was more, that's what it was. But she doesn't see color, or she always raised us not to see oh. difference between people. But that now I'm saying, but we do notice differences, and that's important, and that we need to speak about people's mm-hmm. different experiences and what they're going through, and and. And again, that, you know, she was quite shocked that some of the statistics she really didn't even know about um, how many deaths in custody there had been since the last Royal Commission and things like that. And I'm saying, can you not understand why people are marching right now? Exactly. And we have so many people, and so many police officers. And you know, we had officers. four more deaths like two days ago. Those four young kids in Townsville. Whoa. Right. The youngest was 14 in the car. So it was a stolen car and the kids probably out joyriding and, 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 you know, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But there is a, a very kind of strict directive from the commissioner here in Queensland, the police commissioner, not to chase, especially if they're kids. If you know they're kids in a stolen car, Don't chase them. do not pursue them. They're actually hit by the police car. And that's how they that's that's how they crash. But the police, you know, there's no video footage. Oh, so there's no course. dash cam on the police car. All of a sudden, there's no body cam. It was turned off again, was it? Exactly. Oh. So as we speak, you know, I want to acknowledge the the grieving families now in our community here in Queensland yeah. that are about to bury, you know, four young children, yeah. who doesn't matter the circumstances, they 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 shouldn't have died. No. The police shouldn't have chased him and I'm pretty sure the next protest, those four young children, their names will join that list. They will join it, yeah. And then the one yesterday, the five-month-old Aboriginal baby in Catherine, the police came to the units and arrested the 21-year-old mother. She was there with her five-month-old baby and a five-year-old little kid. Her father and her grandfather was in the house and they'd been drinking. She said to the police... Please don't leave my baby. Can I take my baby with me? And they said, no. It's 5 a.m. in the morning. You'll be back later on this afternoon to collect your baby. And the baby died. So today as we speak, there's another investigation. a baby. A baby. And I think if that mother was an Aboriginal, those police would have allowed that mother to take take her. Or find someone to take the baby. Not leave them in a house with two people that are, are drunk or drinking. And a child that can't. Ugh. That's heartbreaking. I, I had not heard that yet. And I saw some, um, as we have everything at the moment, is a, is a post um, about speaking on behalf of nurses internationally. Going, you know, We constantly deal with people who are out of order, intoxicated, angry, violent, and we don't kill them. We manage always our duty of care and manage to give them the treatment that that we have to give them without them dying in our care. Yeah. Why is it different for police officers? Especially Especially Indigenous. you have, you know, darker coloured skin and I'm like kind of caramel. I'm not that dark but I can tell you now. The moment I engage with police, they know I'm Aboriginal, the first – thing I do, you know, is I, I, I talk to them and I think they know our language, they know how we talk mm. um, and you can kind of pick up straight away that I'm Aboriginal as soon as I start talking to people. But I have had six mug shots in the Brisbane Watch House. <laughs> Here I am working with some of the biggest corporates in the country 
And I own this because you know what? The stereotype around, oh, yeah, if you're kind of a bum or you're homeless and you, you know, don't look the part, you know, you, of course you're going to probably get locked up for being, you know, drunk on the streets or whatever, a public nuisance. But I've come out of a nightclub, you know, had a good night out and been racially profiled. And literally I've argued because when we were little, my dad and mum, you're prepared as a child. You are prepared to answer the police in a certain way. You're trained in an Aboriginal household. When a police officer pulls you over, this is what you say. You say, I know my rights. Am I being charged? Am I under the suspicion of anything? And therefore, I don't have to tell you my name. That was the wrong advice. (laughs) Dun, dun. That was the first um, kind of no, mum and dad, that's not right. That's contravene direction. If you don't give the police officer your name and your age and your date of birth and show them some kind of ID to prove who you are, that is contravene direction. That's the first charge. The second one is, okay, now you're intoxicated. That's drunk in public. So public drunkenness is a charge. It's actually illegal. It is illegal in the state of Queensland to be drunk in public. So being drunk in public is actually a crime so in all Queensland. Those in the valley. <laughs> there you go. Well, hold a moment. What about out at Doombin when the races are oh, on? Oh, oh they, I, I used to live near there, and I I couldn't. And what about in Melbourne and, and all those? You know, not just white fellows, no, but let's be people. Real, it's white ladies with fascinators that aren't fascinated. Really that are staggering out of there, and there's no. I'll tell you now. I've been to the races. I've never walked out of Doombin with with police waiting to book people. I've never seen that before. Um, But what I'm saying here is that being drunk in public in the the state of Queensland is still legislation here, Mm. right? It doesn't exist in any other uh, state or territory, only in Queensland. Mm. Victoria had the law revoked last year because of Tanya Day, an Aboriginal mother the age of 55 who died. See, I talked to my mum about Tanya. I've never been in trouble with the law. You know what? The fact that she went and had a good time and yeah. got drunk and the fact that she fell asleep on that on train, train. Like I said to my mum, I said, how many times have I done that yeah. and known that I'll be safe, yeah. that I could and that I'd give lip to an officer but if she was arrested up. and yeah. handcuffed and at the next station. She was arrested, charged for public drunkenness, taken back to the police station. And left it. They literally could see from the TV footage that she was – she stag- She was very intoxicated, right, and she could not even stand up to the point where when she stood up she actually lost her, her, her balance and she whacked her head so hard that you know yeah. from watching it that that was the blow. Right then and there, online, that was the – go and watch the CCTV footage and, you know, it's, trigger warning. Yeah, it's horrifying. And it's so sad because this is a mother and a grandmother mm. who should have been driven home to her family. Yep. You know, she did not deserve to die. No. So 17 days later she died of a horrific brain hemorrhage. Um, and Tanya Day is her name and, and I could tell you now, when you just think of an everyday person um, who was a loving mother and a grandmother, that could have been your mother mm. or your grandmother. Yep. Uh, but it probably never will be your experience if you're not Aboriginal in this country. And isn't that sad that Our young people, especially my family, you know, when we went to the protest last week, my company, all I wanted to do was I wanted to turn up with with Tanya Days. I wanted her face. I wanted her name. I wanted her age 
on a placard. I wanted Dumaji on a placard. Now, he was murdered within 40 minutes of being arrested by Sergeant Hurley in Palm Island or on Palm Island. Within 40 minutes, his spleen and his liver severed in half. And the coroner's report said that that would be the direct impact or the result of of a plane crash, his injuries. Now, look, I wanted to hold those faces and I wanted to put faces to these names, not just wear a T-shirt with Black Lives Matter and carry signs and wear Aboriginal flags. That's all good. We've done that a million times. Mm. But I just wanted people to actually see their, their faces. So I decided to contact 20 families out of the 550-plus Aboriginal deaths in custody and I got permission from the 20 families. So my my staff did the, 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 the posters and we turned up to that march and we handed out all these posters. But the night before, when the posters arrived, I had my eight-year-old sitting at the dinner table. It was actually breakfast on the morning. And he said to me, Mum, who's this lady? And I said, well, that's... You know, that's like an auntie to you and it was 10-year day. Mm. And he said, why is she on this poster for? Because he knows that we're going to a Black Lives Matter protest. They're watching the news with us every moment. They're hearing me on the phone. And I, I told him what happened. Now, this is an eight-year-old kid in grade three trying to get his head around that this looks like one of his aunties. It was a familiar face to him and he wanted to know his story. Should I have just kind of sugarcoated that? Or should I have told him this is a situation? I tried to tell him as nice as I could because I don't want him, same as my parents, right? I could tell you now, we didn't get told a lot of things growing up because they didn't want us to be bitter or angry towards a lot of the white fellas that had caused a lot of pain, you know, and the injustices inflicted upon our people. So a lot of these stories were kind of kept from us. So I was, re- I was, I was aware at that time of not telling him too much. But then the next one was TJ Hickey. It's from from Red. That's my nephew. I told him about he wasn't old enough to remember the Redfern riots, so I told him about T.J. Hickey. You know, the next minute Elijah Dalty, a little boy, fourteen year old, some white fella driving his Ute sees his kid on a motorbike, goes, "Oh, that looks like a motorbike that was stolen from my yard." Wasn't even his motorbike; it was Elijah's motorbike. He ran him down, ran over the kid. But the worst thing is, and this is why I can't get over this in terms of no regard at all, not for a human life but for a child, he left Elijah to die. He didn't go back and check on him. He didn't ring the police. What person, what, what, what person could, black, white or yellow, I don't care what nationality, but who could run over a child know that they have seriously injured him because they've gone under your car and not go back and check on him. You know, I've hit, I've hit a dog before. I have. I've, I've run over a cat or a dog and I remember turning the car around and feeling so bad that I've just taken an animal's life. Mm. How could you not, not even have feeling back. towards, you know, whether it's an animal or a human? So that was the first time I sat down and started talking to my kids about what's happening in this country, what's been happening for the last 230 years. You know, when people talk about the black deaths in custody, you know, in Australia, most people are talking about the 432 and I've got a T-shirt that says 432 plus now. Someone said to me, actually, there was 99 Aboriginal deaths in custody. 
that were part of the 1980 to 1989. That was the time frame where they did the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Mm. They based it on 99 deaths between 1980 and 1989. It's been 432 plus since 1989. So the number and the list that we've got, the data that we've got is incorrect. And the more and more, so this is what's happening right now as we speak. Because I did those posters and I circulated them online, I've had about 20 families in the last week send me photos of their deceased loved ones. Oh, goodness. Tell me information about how they died and ask, can you now do a poster for my loved one? Every time I get that message, I tell you now, I stop and I cry and I just think about what if this was my son? What if this was my mother? What if this was my father? And to know that there's more families out there that, have had this experience but haven't had justice. They haven't had, you know, a, a day in court where they can actually say, hold a minute, you know, we need some evidence here and we want some witnesses here and we want we want the police and we want the government, we want you to be held accountable. Mm. In over 550 Aboriginal deaths in custody in this country, not one conviction. It's... You know, I just can't it's get over it. And yet still we haven't broken out in violent protests and, you know, started, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, what they're doing in the US is okay in terms of like ripping shit up. But, mate, they're getting, their demands are being met. Yeah. Their demands are being met. The whole list of demands. How many police from the Minneapolis police force have now retired? retired. <laughs> was that up to like 58 or something the other day? What, does that mean that they're going to be free from, you know, being held accountable? Probably. You know, now that I'm not a police officer anymore, then, you know, give me my beautiful pay package and, and I'll just retire and disappear. The, the Minneapolis Council defunded the police. Yeah. Like, so there has been at least in the US where I, I teach in the US quite a bit, but um, I have many friends there and, and, and they are in the streets and, and mm. shit is happening there. But I don't think it should have to, this is what angers me the most. None of this should have ever happened and it shouldn't, and it is happening and there's no acknowledgement on a systematic government or law level in this country. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, I don't like, and then, yeah, and then more nonviolent direct protest or, or, or sitting and, and writing and activism and dealing with lawyers and solicitors and police. And it's like, for what? I It just mm-hmm. boggles my mind and I don't. Well, the, the amount of money in terms of taxpayers' dollars for a royal inquiry into anything, right? Yeah. And all of that work that people that, you know, you know that they contribute, whether you're part of the inquiry, whether you're giving evidence, like – that is a, a, a huge process, right? Yeah. Then to have the 339 recommendations, which are the findings handed down, mm. and that was in 1991 and to date you can count on one hand how many recommendations have actually been in, implemented. So one of the first recommendations they said that should be immediately implemented was to decriminalise public drunkenness. Because out of the 99 deaths in custody, a lot of those people were drunk at the time of their arrest. If they weren't drunk at the time of their arrest, then they wouldn't have been charged. There was was 
no right to actually, you know, keep them. So back in 91, one of the first recommendations was to decriminalise public drunkenness. One of the other ones that's interesting, I was talking to Deb Kilroy from Sisters Inside, you know, deadly woman, not Aboriginal woman, but she's got a campaign called Free Her, which is an amazing campaign. I should talk about that as well. But um, Debbie Kilroy, I rang her up the other night and I just said, look, Deb, I run a business, I deliver training, I look after corporates and, and I do my thing at Black Cat. I've got my little podcast on the side and we're, we're doing this shit every single day. I do it nine to five, after five, on the weekends. This is, this is my life. I didn't just turn up to a, a protest and start holding posters, you know, because we had nothing to do. I live and breathe this. Life. I educate. Yeah. I share statistics and legislation that impacts more on the Aboriginal population than non-Aboriginal population, like the public drunkenness and stuff like that. Mm. I talk about tenure day every day. I talk about dormagy every day, right? So here I am talking about these people, talking about legislation so I could say for mainstream Australians, this is where we need you to put pressure on government to change legislation that impacts more or disproportionately impacts on Aboriginal people because you only have to look at the prison population that we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. Right, we're 3% of the population and yet we make up just under 30% of the prison population. So I rang Deb and I was like, Deb, look, all I want to do was some posters for my kids. Now it ended up being posters for everyone. Now I've got families ringing me and I've got families, you know, messaging me and I feel now that I've, I, I've, got, to, I've got to do more, right? Cut long story short, I said to Deb, you know, what's, you know, educate me. This is what you do day to day. This is not my day to day. Educate me. What, what are some of the things that if we're going to come together as a collective and fight for reform, mm-hmm. you know, look at the different legislation, look at those recommendations and so on. What's one of the things that that we don't know about, the everyday person in Australia? And you know what she said to me? As part of a coroner's report, so when someone dies, especially in police custody or in a prison, everyone has a coroner's report. And the coroner's report hands down findings, which are recommendations. And she said out of nearly every single Aboriginal death in custody, you will find this finding at least 500 times to remove the hanging point in a prison cell. That has not happened, she said to me. So people are still able to hang themselves in a cell because they haven't implemented. They still haven't done that. That's why the protest today was going to happen outside, outside the, the prisons. Prison. Uh-huh. We need to put pressure now on prisons. Some of them are privatised. They've, you know, they're, they're not government-owned. They're businesses. They're yeah. businesses. It costs $160,000 of taxpayers' money, my money, your money, our money, to lock someone up. You know, I just keep thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way. And I'm not saying, you know, to, to defund policing, but there's got to be a better way of policing. Mm. When the police turned up to that family's house in Catherine, that young woman, that was quite distressed and her five-month-old baby was left there. They should have rang an elder. They should have rang a a community organisation. You know, they should have rang somebody. Something should Brought them to the household and discussed what they were going to do, what kind of action that they were going to take. That is a much better way and it will save a lot of taxpayers' dollars. If we start building these relationships in community, Mm. And then we start supporting the police 
to do their job, but more importantly, that they start seeing us as human beings. And I think that's why there's a lot of distrust distrust amongst us with police. Mm. You know, there's a lot of anger of and there's a lot of unresolved issues there between us that goes beyond just black deaths in custody. Mm. Um, so if we started to focus on those relationships, I think so many other areas in society would improve. 100%. You're thinking about those times when someone is having um, – a mental episode or a breakdown or there's yeah. domestic violence or there's but how it could be handled yeah. with someone arriving that is trained in that area to to de-escalate that situation and to exactly. treat them a, like a humans. community member. Yeah, someone they know well, and respect. somebody also who's got the skills and experience and the expertise mm. to actually deal with the situation because not every police officer understands, no. you know, what mental health is. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of Aboriginal culture, history and society, Aboriginal, you know, police don't get training on that. So they're coming in already with, you know, not the best attitude towards us. Yeah, they don't have the skill set to that deal with that. That makes it, you know, and simple often, to just yeah, lock you up yeah. because you're just another Aboriginal person. Yeah. <laughs> I think also a big onus on non-Indigenous people is also the reality of unexamined internal bias mm -hmm. and and really we have to like a lot of people talk about decolonization in its very literal form the giving back of sovereign land but but it's also like we have to fucking work this shit out inside right and i think each of us as individuals like we need to do our own mm. you know internal kind of figure out who we are where we come from mm. who our ancestors are look if they were you know not nice people, then just yeah. own the shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Leichhardt, um, Millman, he had an electorate in, in Victoria. The, oh. the seat of Millman was renamed because he led so many massacres. Governor Macquarie, you only have to look at his orders to his soldiers in 1816, and I'm going to quote this straight from Governor Lachlan Macquarie. He's, he said this, he said, to, to capture the natives, this is his orders to his soldiers, to capture the natives and to make them prisoners of war. And if they are to resist, to shoot them and then to hang their bodies in the most conspicuous places as to strike terror in the surviving natives. That was in 1816. Now, if Governor Lachlan Macquarie is this amazing you know, first governor of New South Wales. You've got Port Macquarie named after him. I'm pretty sure Macquarie Bank, the Macquarie University. The Macquarie Dictionary. Oh, my God, Macquarie Fields. Yeah. So when you talk about decolonisation, it's like, well, hold a minute. Most of these kind of people where we're holding in high regard were freaking murderers. Yeah. Yep. Why are we trying to, you know, bullshit ourselves, yeah. you know, with some families actually know that the, their family's mm. history but they don't yeah. don't want to really share it because wealthy. they're ashamed of it mm. yeah they're still profiting from the but well, they're still profiting families. but like in germany it's it's against the law to deny that the holocaust didn't happen mm. yeah you know own your shit mm. you know way. there's it's not all bad mm. you know some horrible parts of our history in this country but there's some beautiful stories yeah, yeah. Of how black and white have come together, how settlers, you know, hid. There was German families on the Gold Coast that hid Aboriginal people yeah. under their houses and in their barns. I heard in because they were being too. shot at. Mm. Far out. You know, I know that in 
I don't know if this is a lovely story, but, you know, in, in Rockhampton, my great-grandmother um, was born in 1901 and she went to the convent. She had a religious mother and father, only child. Where do you meet a black family with one child? <laughs> so my great-grandmother, the only child, growing up in the convent in Rockhampton, and she had a little girl in her class, grade one, it's about 1906, and they called her the last of her tribe. And the story goes like this, that after Mass, the priest said Mass on a Sunday and he went out with a group of white fellas on a picnic. They used to call them shooting picnics. And they, you know, went out and shot this whole group of Aboriginal people, shot the, everybody except for this little baby girl. And the priest literally said, don't shoot her, I'll take her home with me. The priest took the little baby and he raised the little girl and everybody knew her like my great-grandmother did and remembered this little girl as the last of her tribe. So that to me is a story that's not written down. No. You know, these are stories in our families. This is an opportunity that we can share these stories with each other. And if we cry together and we grieve together and we can kind of, you know, I guess take the Band-Aid off these wounds, yeah. that's when healing will happen. Yeah, and it's going to hurt and it's going to be uncomfortable, guys. Well, it, just, it has to be <laughs> It has to be only way. <laughs> you can't like, you know, have 300 <laughs> to 500 recorded massacres no. in this country. I think when people are going, they're like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm fatigued by it. And I'm like, how do you think Aboriginal people feel? <laughs> Try sake. living it. Try being in, yeah. But you know what? In it every day. This is this is where this is what I want to say. I want to say to people this, right? How do you reconcile when we don't even know what we're reconciling about? Yeah. So reconciliation to me is like over there somewhere. I can't see it, but it exists. Yeah, we said sorry. We said sorry. There's 72 other countries in the world that we can refer to in terms of examples where they went through a truth and reconciliation process. Colombia, Uganda, South Africa, there's there's 72 examples. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, mm. you know. Hopefully Australia will become the 73rd country that goes through a truth-telling process and then hopefully, you know, we can close that chapter in our nation's history in that book and we can re you know, let's write the next chapter together. Yeah. And if you want to call it reconciliation, then we could call it that. But at the moment it's like we're trying to aim for reconciliation in this country without any truth. So we need to bring people along with us on this journey. And once people understand why Aboriginal people are in the position that we're in today, we will have a much more united Australia and we will be one and we can live in this country together and hopefully, you know, my children enjoy the same opportunities that your children will enjoy. So there's a lot of work that we need to do, but don't leave it up to the 3% of my people no. to do the heavy lifting. I think that's Otherwise it. it's never going to happen. I've found that had similar conversations with, with um, like my African-American friends uh, just going, you know, why? Why do I have to lift it all? Why do I have to continually explain how you can help me or how you can be an ally? We've got enough on our plate. Mm-hmm. So it is how to be the best ally and how to uh, – Lend your your power or lend your voice and energy towards I love this, this cause, lending but your without, voice, but with but with respect and with with holding place, of course. So you know, maybe we've got to speak up. Maybe people just see this 
you know, in terms of what we need to do in, in this country, in Australia, is I think the everyday Australian needs to see this as their own kind of personal responsibility. Mm. You know, what can I do to create change in this country yes. so we don't leave this shit for the next generation? No. You know, I think there's an opportunity now. The time has come. I'm pretty sure that um, we'll see change in my lifetime and I haven't said that mm. much before. Well, I, f- I feel... Um, actually, after the march last weekend, I really did feel the first real fire of hope in my chest and walking through the city with more people than I've ever seen before and and elders and children and, and you know, dogs and families and everyone walking together. Um, yeah, I think that, that we will see it. Well, thank, I wanna, thank you for coming. No, bless you for coming and talking with us today. Yeah. Thank you so Anytime. much. I want to have you again. Look, we'll do part amazing. two. We would love that. <laughs> yes, please. Wanna, um, okay. Yeah. How, can you tell us how to, like, how can people bring their attention to your work? Easy, easy. So obviously I've got the podcast Black Magic Woman. Do it. And it's, it's not about delicious. me and all the things that I love in life. It's about every other deadly black fella and not just Aboriginal people, right? I've got, you know, a lot of other people that I absolutely love what they're doing in this space, right? So, you know, the podcast is there but have a look at the black card because the education and the knowledge that comes from my elders is now available to, to everyone. So reach out to the black card and look, if I can't help you, I'm pretty sure I know someone who can. So don't give up. Thank you Love so it. much. Thank you so much. You're for welcome. That. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We lay upon the hill that lay beneath the wolf sky. We felt the dark clouds falling and omen apparition. And with the thunder rolling, how preceded the storm we lay beneath the wolf sky. We lay beneath the wolf sky. This has been the Antipodean Arts Podcast. Music by Wendy Rule. The song is Wolf Sky.